Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill and I am the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. Really excited about this show today. This has been in the works for a very, very long time. But on today's episode, I'm excited to explore the issues around language and the veterinary medical profession. So just to give a bit of background, in 2018, I published a piece in Today's Veterinary Business, shout out to them, and their diversity toolkit column that they have me write on a regular basis. But I explored this issue of language in the profession. And and, and I argued about the need for greater multilingualism and greater use of translational tools in practice. In the article, I also referenced a 2015 article study that Texas A actually conducted, and in which they found that half of the dairy and meat production workforce were made up of immigrants, many of whom did not speak English at all or um, had low English proficiency, meaning they don't speak English necessarily very well. The finding highlighted a growing language gap that could reduce the effectiveness of veterinary professionals in this particular practice area. Now, given what's been going on with the pandemic, and as we record this, is just a I think a day after the uh, federal executive order requiring meat production plants to remain open in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, this topic seems super relevant, even more relevant than it was maybe a couple of days ago. It's important to note that English is only the third most spoken language in the world, second to Mandarin Chinese and Spanish. And many countries around the world encourage multilingualism and actually have a very high expectation that their populations are able to speak two or even more languages. But here in the U.S., we are pretty much monolingual. Only one in four Americans are proficient in a second language in addition to English. And there's tons of research across the kind of human health, kind of the scholarly work that really highlights how language barriers directly impact health outcomes. And there's absolutely no reason to think that that it was a, would be a different trend in veterinary medicine, especially when animals are dependent on their people to speak for them. So with all of that in mind, I'm really delighted to welcome a pretty big panel today, and we will kind of get into all of this. So without further ado, welcome Dr. Danielle Fry of Colorado State, Steffi Ann Dulaprie of Cornell University, Juan Orjuela of the Ontario Veterinary College, and Usma Manzur, who will be a first-year student at Michigan State University this fall. And I've invited them all to discuss this topic of multilingualism and veterinary medicine. So as is our practice on the show, I always have my guests introduce themselves first. And so, Danielle, why don't you tell our viewers and listeners a little bit about yourself? Oh, certainly. Um, It's so nice to meet all of you, and thank you so much for having me here today. I'm very excited to be able to speak today with everybody. As you you mentioned, or as was mentioned, I work for Colorado State University. I've been a veterinarian since 2008, and so I've had time in practice and working at the university. For CSU, I'm the Director of International um, and Outreach Student Experiences, and I also coordinate our Spanish for Veterinarians Language Program. 
And so, yeah, I spent a lot of time working and volunteering in Latin American countries and also working with Spanish-speaking clientele during my... um, Wonderful, wonderful. Stefian, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me here, too. And my name is Steffi Andelpri. And in French, that would be Steffi Angelia for those who can pronounce it, but no worries if you can't. So I am now maybe two to three weeks away from graduating from the Cornell class of 2020. And I am the immediate past culture outreach officer at SAVMA. My current role right now is with the Multicultural Veterinary Veterinary Medical Association as their uh, current community outreach and volunteer chair. I grew up on the island of Haiti for about 10 years, and I've been in New York ever since, and happy to be here. Welcome. Juan. All right. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. So my name is Juan Sebastián Orjuela. I am originally from Bogota, Colombia, and I am currently a second-year veterinary student at the Ontario Veterinary College in Canada. To tell you a little bit about how my involvement in vet school, I am uh, co-president of the PriVMC chapter at my school, as well as the co-founder of the Latinx Veterinary Medical Association, uh, which has recently kind of been formed or is in the process of being formed as an established organization in the veterinary community. So we're looking forward to that. So yeah, super happy to be here. Thank you so much. And can't wait to talk some more. <laughs> Awesome. Wonderful. And last and certainly not least, newcomer to the veterinary scene, Uzma. Tell us about yourself. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, Lisa. I am going to be a first-year student at Michigan State University in the DVM program. And I am a non-traditional student, so this is uh, almost like a second path for me in life. But For the past 10 years, I've studied animal and human behavior extensively, and I've had the wonderful privilege of working with special needs communities, individuals with autism. So working on inclusivity and promoting environments that really encompass the differences of all people, that has been a very close passion to my heart in the past 10 years. And I'm very excited that I can bring all of that passion and experience into the veterinary medicine side. Welcome and congrats. Go green and all of that. (laughs) So we got a nice, lovely, diverse group here. So what languages are represented here on this podcast? Steffi? Haitian Creole and French and English. All right. Juan? So I'm fluent in Spanish as my native language and also English. (laughs) Isma? I am a Pakistani-American, so I am fluent in Urdu. And over the course of my high school and college education, I did study about four years of Spanish. So I do have a basic understanding for Spanish as well. Awesome. Awesome. And Danielle? Yes. So I speak English and was raised with English. And then I studied Spanish all throughout high school and a minor in college. Wonderful. Great. Awesome. Awesome. I took eight years of Latin. I'm really good at state capitals and mottos. <laughs> Not really particularly good at spoken romance languages, but I pretty much can read all of the romance languages if you just kind of give me a little bit of a C-spot run and <laughs> <Head> start. <laughs> a little while to kind of get back into it, but I, I am pretty good at reading most of the romance languages. So 
Why don't we dive in? So Danielle, I'm going to start with you. What do you, how do you think being multilingual shaped the way that you approach the profession or kind of the lens with which that you, you, you think about these things, particularly as a faculty member? I'm going to come back to the faculty member piece. You know, it really, I think being multilingual probably shaped my entire career trajectory, but also how I interact with all of my clients. And I think being able to speak Spanish and and get to work with Spanish-speaking clients really opened me up to the importance of communication. And then no matter what we say, we want to make sure that both parts of the, the conversation is understood. And being trying to speak in a second language and make sure that what I'm saying is understood really made me focus even on what I speak and say in English. And as a veterinarian, right, we speak veterinary medicine potentially as an additional language. And so we always have to be conscious when we're speaking with our clients to make sure what I'm saying, they understand and able to relate it to their pet. And so I think I'm just extra conscious about that. It's really increased my empathy and my drive to like create that connection, no matter what language we're speaking, that we're able to connect and help the animal or situation. Steffi, do you want to weigh in? The empathy part uh, that you mentioned, Danielle, was that's something that I relate to a lot. I think my perspective coming from a country that speaks two official languages now, it's a unique perspective, I would say, because just a very brief history, Haiti's been it declared French as the official language for many years, but only in the 80s, it decided to allow Creole to be an official language. So because of that, French was seen as kind of the, the language of associated with intelligence, opportunity, and just everything, and even respect, and the other was not. Being bilingual has been a huge part of my life ever since, you know, I immigrated from uh, Colombia to the United States. It's really impacted the way that I perceive my education and what I want to do with my future. So growing up, there was a huge lack of representation of the Latin community in veterinary medicine. I always wanted to be a veterinarian, but I never found somebody to look up to a role model that I could say, okay, I, I can relate to them and they're going to inspire me to, to, to you know, keep going with my dream and uh, motivate me. So I, I struggled a lot growing up and I think that struggle made me realize that I wanted to still pursue this, this profession and my dream. But once I did, I wanted to create the change that needed to, to happen, right? To create an impact. I didn't just want to become a veterinarian and, and just work as a general practitioner. I wanted to become a veterinarian and, and create a, an impact to help other students like me, like myself growing up, have a role model and see like, oh, okay, he looks like me or she looks like me, talks like me, and then I have a future in this career, right? So it's really shaped the way that I've navigated vet school so far. So I've been pretty involved in anything that really involves diversity. I'm, I'm a, big, a big advocate for diversity. Like I said, I'm part of the Pride BMC at my school and I'm the president for that. So like throughout that journey, I I kept doing research just because I kept seeing that there was like the Black DVM network and other represented groups that had their communities formed. And I, you know, I thought to myself, okay, there has to be a Latin representation of some sort. Like we, we make up a big majority of the population in the United States and North America were the second most spoken language. You know, I'm, I'm just 
you know, I would be shocked if there wasn't. So I did my research and I was, you know, shocked to find out that there wasn't. So I went ahead and said, you know, this needs to like change and I want to create that community, that space for people like me to to be represented in, in a profession where there's actually a lot of Latin speaking people, right? Another thing, being a, a veterinary assistant for so many years before applying to veterinary school, I was utilized in many practices as a person to uh, translate uh, for different clients. This was the moment I realized that I, I, I wanted to, you know, bring that awareness, bring that visibility for, for my community, at least. It's crazy because we started, uh, me, me and a, a friend from Cornell, we met on Instagram. I'm pretty active on social media and we connected and we, we had the same goals. She, she's half Mexican, half American, and she also wanted to create this community. So we collaborated and we co-founded the Latinx Veterinary Medical Association. And yeah, and, and it's kind of taken off from there. And the great thing about this is that we're building a core executive branch. And when we're interviewing for this branch or, or to create this, uh, association, we find that a lot of people that we're talking to have had the same, you know, feelings and, and, and struggles that we have, right? They felt like there wasn't a place for them in, in the profession. There was a lack of representation. We even thought that we were going to struggle to get any interest with the organization. But once we like released it on social media, it's blown up. So many people have reached out with their stories. It's so unique. And, and, and we saw that like really extensive need for this community to be built. So that's a huge driving force right now for me in veterinary school as a second year veterinary student. You know, I think this organization is going to impact me for the rest of my life as a veterinarian, as a professional in general, and hopefully it's going to impact the profession as a whole and not just myself, but a lot of people that are um, going through through the stuff that I'm going to uh, with veterinary medicine, so it's it's really been a driving force, and I just can't wait to to see what happens in the future, and I'm really excited. So it's impacted my life a lot. <laughs> well, thank you, and yeah, we will be doing a future episode on uh, the Latinx VMA sometime soon, so uh, be on the lookout for that. And so, Uzma, tell us a little bit about how language has really kind of shaped your approach, I mean, you've already had one career kind of, you know, related kind of in that animal veterinary space. So, so tell me a little bit about how kind of that intersects with issues around language for you. So I think especially when we are talking about private practice, this definitely becomes a huge challenge to really find opportunities to educate clients adequately. I think, and like Danielle had mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes within these fields, you know, whether, because I worked as a behavior analyst before, and now I'm going to be, you know, and I have a little bit of experience working as a veterinary assistant. So I've seen the clinical side of it. And sometimes there's challenges in connecting and building rapport and being able to pass on that piece of education that you're trying to pass on. And I know it was touched on before. I think empathy is a huge driving factor in building that rapport. And when you have and you when you are multilingual, when you have understanding of a different culture, you know, I may not be able to speak French. However, I do speak other languages. I understand that there is a possible gap in the cultures that what the client is presenting to me in terms of how they're going to manage their pet ownership versus how I do it. So I think 
being multilingual definitely opens opens a lot of doors in how you can approach your clients. And and I think that can really go, you know, it can evolve into when you're talking about, you know, like the dairy side of things as well, or agriculture, you know, there's just like, depends on who you're calling the clients or the people of interest there. It really opens doors to how much you can connect with them and communicate with them. Yeah, language is such an important part of culture, which I think Steffi and Juan both kind of touched on in their comments. It's such a part of kind of who you are, where you grew up, what you're repping and all of that, that it not only kind of really is an opportunity to kind of practice that empathy, but it really builds some immediate trust when you are able to just communicate with someone who is especially seeking out your your services and your assistance you know they need help right they their their animal needs care and you know it's it's incredibly frustrating to have access to medical care and not be able to communicate <laughs> with your provider right we know that that there's a lot of literature about this in human health and not quite as much really specifically around veterinary medicine. And so we know that there are certainly institutions that are doing things. They're offering lots of different kinds of things. A lot of that isn't necessarily in the curriculum proper. It's kind of co-curricular, kind of propped up alongside it. So we know that that CSU has a program. So Danielle, why don't you tell us a little bit about how the college is kind of addressing this issue to help students be prepared to work in a more multilingual society. Definitely. Starting in 2015, myself and an instructor from the languages department actually came together to create a series of courses that our students can take while in veterinary school. So now we have seven credits of Spanish for veterinarians that are available to our students starting in second year that they can complete during their time. It starts even with an introduction to Spanish for veterinarians. For anybody who hasn't had a history in formal Spanish language education, and then there's a four-credit rural veterinary course. Uh, you know, you guys, we've mentioned a couple of times that need for Spanish in the livestock industry and working in that arena. So there's four language courses de- dedicated to that. And then there's an immersive practicum during their third year. And so we've built those together. And what's really unique and, and really cool about our program is that we have a languages instructor who is somebody who actually knows how to teach a language to a person. And then myself, who has used the language in our field as a veterinarian. And so we were able to come together and say, hey, this is what we, we're going to need to say when we're out there as veterinarians. And then Shannon Zeller's like, great, this is how we can teach that. And we use this context. It's called text, task-based learning. It's called that. And so we're, we're taking the language of being a veterinarian, the vocabulary, the grammar, and all of those contexts. And that's the way we're teaching Spanish. And so it's a really great applied approach and our veterinary students can start in their second year and take it all the way through. Oh, very cool. So how many students on average are kind of enrolled in in these courses? Yeah, it grows every year, actually, which is fantastic. And so we had 50 students last year and take our the practicum, which has a limit of 20 because we really like that one-on-one language engagement. Our introductory course has 25 spaces, and we actually increased the capacity of the rural series to 35 students in each course. Wow. And there's and there's really high interest in all of it. 
Wonderful. So um, I'm kind of curious, Steffi and, and Juan, and, and Steffi, we'll go with you first. Are there any similar kinds of offerings, either kind of um, formally or informally at Cornell? Yeah, so I think for Cornell, we have, I guess I would separate into three versions. The first is on the pre-veterinary side. They, we have an animal science program where the students are really involved in kind of the dairy health and dairy herd aspect of science. They do have a semi-formal and formal language program with the pre-veterinary program. And a lot of us have kind of seen that and wondered if we could have one more formally at the vet school, seeing that we're in the field and we're out there working. But I have to say in terms of, so the second aspect in terms of the veterinary school itself, I would say it's been more informal. So clubs like Voice have kind of taken that mantle on. And for many years, Voice has hosted a language course every spring. So they hosted Spanish a few years, French, because I think maybe because we're so close to Canada, we do have a number of French speaking students every now and then who come by. Um, And um, so essentially we, yeah, we've had that. And then, um, in terms of, of a more formal program, I think what I can think of is a Cornell Dairy Institute, the, the Summer Dairy Institute that we host at Cornell. We have kind of this really immersive, intensive program. It's for veterinary students and recent grads and things, but it's in the summer, it's six weeks long, and the program really focuses on all aspects of herd health and the dairy industry, and it has kind of at its core, part of its core, a language training aspect of it. And I think it's um, really great. And I've heard good things about the program itself. But yeah, in a lot of ways, in terms of the part of our school, in terms of programming, it's been a lot of the student programming that you've seen kind of these language programs. And of course, there's been talks about enhancing kind of a communication course that already been implemented. We all have to take communication courses as part of some of our block curriculum to help implement that to make that a little more formal. And Juan, what's going on at OVC? Unfortunately, there's not any program uh, like the one that the ladies described at OVC. So Canada is pretty diverse in itself as a, as a country, but the school itself, I think, lacks a lot of representation from the Latino community, at least. I know there's different groups that are represented a little more. So that being said, like me and like two other People in my class are, are the only Latin students that are there. So we don't have a voice either. So that, that's kind of a reason also why I decided to start the Latinx Veterinary Medical Association. One of our goals with the association is to create chapters at every school in North America where we could, you know, facilitate the ability for students to partake in, you know, rounds and rounds in Spanish led by a veterinarian that is Spanish speaking and stuff like that. Because at OBC, we do have a lot of Spanish speaking veterinarians, Mm. which was also a very, very cool surprise that we didn't really expect. But the number of students is, is not as as big as the number of veterinarians. So by creating these chapters, hopefully we will develop things like Danielle is doing at CSU, where we will be able to offer students kind of as a club type of thing to come in, learn how to, you know, speak to a client, communicate to a client in Spanish and and kind of learn the basics. And I think that's really important. Um, also, we, we're a very inclusive group. We, we, 
want to invite anybody that's interested in the Latino culture. So you don't have to be Latinx to be able to be part of the LBMA. You don't have to speak Spanish. So if anybody's ever interested and they just want to learn and and, and see a, a really important role in their ability to speak Spanish and practice, then we will take them with open hands and we would teach them about our culture and everything like that. So, But we do want to empower the Latinx students and lift them up because there is, there's this kind of like our, our purpose and our mission, which has been lacking in the profession. So, and Isma, you're not at vet school yet, but I'm kind of curious about what your academic experience has been related to what, what that experience has been up until this point as a multilingual person. I think that obviously, like you said, at Michigan, I'm still going to learn a lot more about, you know, what programs are available and what opportunities are there. I do know that MSU does have a voice chapter. And so I think that overall, my first experience when I went for my interview, and I kind of want to share this experience a little bit, part of the reason why I was really gravitated towards MSU as well. So their associate dean of student life and inclusivity, Dr. Hilda Mejia Abril, who's also been a guest on one of on some of your series over here, Lisa. And she kind of came in and she was speaking to a large group of us, you know, potential students who are all very nervous. We'd just gone through our interview and she started going around and introducing herself and asking us to introduce us. And when she came across someone who was from Puerto Rico, you know, she started talking to them in Spanish, you know, and it was in front of the whole group. And honestly, like that moment really touched my heart so much because You know, when it comes to the conversations about language and being bilingual, especially in the U.S., and, you know, in the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of grown ideology, you know, or difference in ideology about this, unfortunately. But being there and seeing that while I know that as a South Asian, as a Pakistani American, you know, I really did not see anyone else there in that moment. And I'm sure there were more people in different groups. But in that moment of, you know, 60, 70 of us, I didn't see anyone else who looked like me per se. But, you know, there she was. She was speaking in Spanish very boldly and confidently. And it was amazing. Amazing to see that she was establishing a statement and she was saying at MSU, we welcome people with different languages, we welcome people with different cultures, and we appreciate it and it's accepted. So I think it's, you know, more than formal programming sometimes. It's those little moments where we can really work to change the or shift the mindset of our incoming student body, because these are the people who are going to go out there and they're going to be in the field. So this is the time to really kind of make that impact on there. Yeah, I think it's so important, too, to recognize that 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 moment spoke volumes for everyone in that space, right? Not just the Spanish speakers, but that there was an overture of welcome, right? Right. And that that there was an attempt at connection, that it was meaningful. And and that's just really great stuff. So you all are getting lots of love on YouTube. There's folks that are like, we need a formal program for medical Spanish at Cornell. So yeah. (laughs) And there's also a desire to see that type of programming at Michigan State as well. And I will certainly, there's another question here, but I will hold that one until a little bit later in the show. I want to talk a little bit about, Danielle, what maybe has been the biggest kind of challenge or pushback in in this space and kind of launching that program 
and really kind of getting by in. So she went, uh, for anybody that's not watching, but will listen to this, which always is great because that means there's a story coming. So- <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, I've learned in my lifetime that, you know, I read questions and I hear questions and sometimes I interpret them very differently than everybody else. And that just was a moment there because, you know, you said pushback and that's when I responded. We haven't had any pushback. We have been, we've been, you know, the whole veterinary program has been so excited. Students have been so excited. A couple of people have said, okay, now do French. And I'm like, oh, no French. (laughs) I can't do another one. A pushback that I could talk about gently is that, you know, we're approaching language in a way that's not, it's not traditionally taught. So some traditional language instructors and professors and academicians want to have have taught language from a very traditional space where you're going to be prepared to do the travel and learn about the art and the big C culture and and read all of the big books and know all of it, which is great. And there's value there. And I'm not saying that, but my abilities to speak about those great works fall short when I'm talking to my client about their pet. And so we really, you know, our, our, our unique standpoint is that we're coming at it so that you can use this in your profession. And this is a movement happening across the languages where it's languages for a profession and you're using it and teaching people a language so they can use it when they grow up and become the thing that they're going to become. It's not just a veterinarian, it's a lawyer, it's for construction management, it's whatever it is. And so that's the most pushback that's happened and it's come from other people within the languages department, but we're super fortunate. Because CSU's languages department is like, yeah, we're in. Let's do this. Let's let's join forces and move forward to make this happen and show that this is something that's needed. That could be a challenge that other universities are experiencing in them trying to really get something out of the gate at the level that we're So that's one pushback. This is a place where I kind of wanted to talk about this interesting thing in my own experience with language. Absolutely. I didn't have a word for until I started teaching it. And it's called second language ego. And it touches on our empathy that we were talking about before. Our language ego is this really fascinating thing where we're able to speak in a way that creates our identity. And we've all created an identity that we're able to express whatever level of intellectual we are. We're able to say things in full sentences that have the correct pronunciation in our first native language, right? And so we go to the second language and we might only be able to say in our learning journey, donde baño, or donde baño, or something, and it's not pronounced right. And there's not even a thing in there, right? We're saying, where bathroom? Where bathroom? And that's embarrassing because I'm not saying a full sentence. And maybe you guys are all going to judge me because now, now I don't look very smart, do I? And so this language ego is present for many people. It's present for us as veterinarians as we're going to walk into the room. And now I'm going to talk about your dog. They might not have all the words. But we also remember it's present in our clients who may be breaking out and using their second language and they're like dog itchy or something, you know? And so there's a barrier on both of our sides that could come up. And I experienced this as practice. And now we teach it to all of our students because I want them to learn two things. One, you're just going to have to be bold, try the language because we're not going to be able to speak it until we put it on our tongue and get it out there. And two, it's that empathy piece. And so it's like, okay, well, I'm going to come in here and I'm going to say my sentence and I'm going to try my hardest and I hope I'm right. 
And then my client might be able to see if English isn't their first language. Hey, at least I'm trying. And then they'll try. And there's a removal of fear and fear of judgment where we're going to be able to make that connection we were talking about earlier. And that's so important. Now, I've been told a lot that I have zero second language ego. I'm going to put it out there. But it's terrifying to be able to come out there and say, hey, I don't look as smart as I might actually be. But our clients are feeling that same fear. And so it just really helps create that bond. And so anyway, that's like the biggest challenge I, I saw in practice. And then I help my veterinary students overcome every day because they're out there suddenly saying, donde baño, and we're just making it through. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's such a great example. I mean, I think it's, it, you're right. It is an ego thing because here I'm supposed to know about this critter and then I'm speaking a broken language, right? It's just like just mangled. And I will be, you know, the first to to admit that even in preparation, the few minutes before we went live on this particular show, I asked everyone how to pronounce last names, asked for phonetical spellings. You all were gracious. And then I still may have mangled it during the introductions, but I was like, really like, okay, like I'm really, really trying. And, and you just have to let that, go because you're right. It is just, you won't get better unless you just get on out there. And I imagine for those of you for whom English is a second language that you probably experienced a bit of that, like, okay, here, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I would say that I think about this all the time in terms of there was a, I don't remember the point in my life where I started thinking in English. I really don't. But there was a time where I English truly was something that I was trying to master. So I I wouldn't feel like I was faking it wherever high school or um, middle school when I came here. But I'm going to regret saying this every now and then someone would tell me my accent. I, they can't hear my accent. But as soon as someone says it, my accent comes out. And then I realized like, I feel like it's a constant effort to speak the language to have for the sounds to come out right. And I think that with that struggle kind of never ends. But again, I think it's frightening, especially when you're starting out and you're afraid that you're going to be judged and your intelligence is going to be judged. And you may want to get a point across and you just, you know that when people struggle to hear or to understand what you have to say, then your point just never gets across. So I can see that fear. I can see the, um, the struggle for people, but it definitely, it's something that you need to jump in both feet with. And I think in terms of the veterinary profession, I definitely hear this sometimes. It's not just a veterinary profession even. I think it's just, I think science in general, science, science is complicated. It's very hard. The words, you know, you're speaking about having learned Latin, Latin is difficult and you inject that into science, it's all difficult. And I think we learned something really hard for four years and we forget how difficult the thing was that we learned and how we have to make sure we translate that that to other people. I'm reminded all the time when I'm asked to speak science in French, I'm like, oh, I learned veterinary medicine in English. So it's always a struggle. It's always a struggle. And I think I think it just makes us better, honestly, just jumping in, even though we're afraid sometimes and we're always afraid of failure. It's for, for our patients, it's for our clients. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, it's, it, your clients are experiencing this too. 
right? They're experiencing this kind of bit of disconnect, but also this fear of being judged. How is my English? And it also, all of this also ties into, particularly for folks who, for whom English, at least in this country, is not their first language. It is, oh my goodness, you speak English so well, right? Like, and, and it is a compliment, (laughs) comma, But again, depending on inflection, depending on context and all of those things, it's kind of sometimes a little bit of a backhanded. Like, I didn't expect you to speak so well, right? And and we know that this is that kind of like, oh, you speak so well is a very common microaggression, particularly in communities of color, immigrant communities, communities where multilingual, you know, it's one of those like, oh, you didn't think that I could speak well. But then to Danielle's point, then you're like, you know, where's where bathroom? Like, you know, there's this juxtaposition that's constantly happening that is uncomfortable. And and I think that that the call that I'm hearing is you just have to sit with that discomfort because the only way that you're going to get around it is to go through it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you see, you know, Isma, in, in your career so far, what do you see has been the ben- biggest benefit in terms of making sure that folks have language accessibility in practice? Again, I think it, it goes back to that, you know, I'm going to go back to that building the rapport with the people that you are trying to work with. And, you know, coming from a field where, you know, we are talking about different spoken languages, I have a lot of experience working with people who use ASL, you know, and that is a whole different world of a language, right? And so I think that, you know, really kind of trying to see what you can change in a person's environment to really help them be successful. That is the core that I come from, you know, and I think being a bilingual person just kind of adds to that mindset for me. So if I'm working, whether it's, you know, like I, I, for example, last summer, I had the opportunity to volunteer or intern at a wildlife rehab center in Florida. And in that time, and obviously I'm not, I wasn't a veterinarian, but there was a lot of opportunity for education as people were coming in, bringing in these injured animals. And a lot of these people had a lot of language barriers, you know, and sometimes just kind of using your body language, using your empathy, you know, using your nonverbal cues, mm-hmm. that just does wonders, you know, even because, because again, I'm not going to be able to, I think the expectation that I'm going to learn five different languages and be culturally competent across all these cultures, that's not possible. Right. And I don't expect anybody else working with me to have that kind of cultural competency either, but you know, that's where we use a lot of our nonverbal cues. And so again, having that mindset, I know what it's like to be in a situation where you're held off as a different person. It's funny. I just wanted to make a comment on when you said, you know, like, oh, you speak English so well. It's one of the most common things I get. Oh, you don't look like a Muslim woman, you know? <laughs> so, so it's yeah. just, and, and you know, it's coming from a good place. People are open to, you know, have those conversations and get that education. But I think just for people who are not bilingual, the least that I think people can kind of encompass is keeping that open mindset to what is the learning opportunity I can take out of the situation. Mm-hmm. And as a clinician or as a professional in any field, that does wonders for you. Great. So if you aren't learning a language, actively learning a language, and you know, everybody now that we're all studying and working from home, everyone's like, oh my goodness, you have plenty of time, learn a language. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> 
quite. <laughs> <laughs> And quite work like that, but but certainly there are lots of tools in the event that you find yourself in, you know, I don't want to say this predicament, but you really are trying to eagerly build a bridge, right, uh, across that language barrier. One of the things I think, Juan, you mentioned earlier um, when you were working at a clinic that you were called on to do translation. So yeah. what was that experience like? Did they just kind of call you from the back? Steffi is shaking her head too, so we'll ask you as well. But, <laughs> but yeah, Juan. Yeah, they would, you know, I've, I've lived in, in a few different places. I, I grew up in Minneapolis after moving from Columbia. And then I, and I also went to college in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And then I lived in New York City. And I practiced, or I worked there as an assistant for two years. So I, I've been a variety of different places where there's different types of diversities or communities that are represented. So yes, uh, I would get called up all the time just to translate for doctors or to go in a room for with a doctor. Um, or even when I wasn't working, they would call me and ask me, like, can you translate this really quickly? So I, I think there's a huge, huge importance in representing like language in the veterinary profession. You know, there's a, I think there's a, at least in the Hispanic community, there's a huge misunderstanding that the community itself doesn't really care much about animal welfare to say, we don't like to take our pets to the vet, but you know, we, we don't like to pay for that or anything like that. And I think a lot of it has to do with the lack of education with the clients, right? If the client isn't at least for my culture, I know that Latin or Hispanic people are very warm, right? So when we see somebody that speaks Spanish, we totally open up. Like, it's like every wall comes down, we'll give you a hug, we'll give you a kiss. Like, it, it like doesn't matter. And then and all of a sudden, we have like this really close-knit relationship. You know, when you like talk that language, all of a sudden, like the client puts all this trust in you. And they just like say, like, they'll do anything that you tell them to do, like, we recommend this vaccination, you know, or these preventatives. And all of a sudden you notice that they'll like get it. And without doubting you, they just like trust you or they'll, when they'll call the, the practice or anything, they'll ask for you. Right. So you create this really, really important connection. I think that's why there's a misunderstanding on the community itself. So if we were to represent it, I feel like we would, I mean, as a veterinarian, I my one of my goals is to uh, have a practice, own a practice that is very much like, bilingual and, and and a huge focus on that because we're gonna like my goal is to bring the Latino community into into my practice and for me to be able to educate them and and tell them the importance of coming to the vet, kind of educate them on the importance of the role that veterinarians play in our society. Because it's beyond just cats and dogs, you know, we have a huge impact on public health, a thing that people don't realize. And it plays a huge role with what's going on today, you know, with COVID nineteen. Vets are all over behind the scenes of fighting this whole pandemic. And a lot of the countries that have actually been very successful in, in, in fighting this have implemented the, the work of a veterinarian as, as one of their leaders in, in public health. So I think it's a lack of education. I think once once people realize this and, and the importance of it, I feel like you're going to see a huge influx of the Latino population or other people that, from other cultures or languages coming into the veterinary profession and kind of taking it more seriously, right? I think that's that also goes hand in hand with people saying, oh, you know, human doctors, veterinarians, you know, like kind of disregarding the profession a bit. And I think, again, it has to do with that lack of representation and education. So it, it does play an extremely important role 
And from my experience, I think once we implement that and we, we embrace that, then we can create so much change in the profession. And, and I think it'll be a, such a positive outcome for everybody. And I think veterinary medicine will be perceived in a totally different light. Awesome. Stephanie, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, I, I was really connecting with what you're saying on about having to be a translator and the trust that you build with people when they understand what you're, what you're saying and when you're having an, a general understanding. I remember the first time I was asked to be a translator, that was my, I think, middle school. I was called on the loudspeaker in the school to come be a translator for a, a whole family, for a student who I didn't know. And the family had come from, um, I believe, Senegal. So just they just needed a French-speaking person um, and they didn't have one. And they asked me to come translate for this family. And you could just see, that was my first experience seeing people's eyes light up when, wow, I can, I can get this point. Of, like they're, What I'm trying to say is, unfortunately, because of a language barrier, like I was saying earlier, the intelligence, people's intelligence and respect sometimes, or is the, they feel like they don't have it because they're not able to communicate how they would. It doesn't matter if you were a rocket scientist, you know, in your country, you're here and you don't have your language. You don't have a language to speak. You don't, you're not able to speak your mind. It's, 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 it's incredibly difficult. I just remember seeing their eyes light up. The whole family's eyes light up. And when I came in and I was able to translate information for the family to the school. And then I think on the reverse side of that, I was, so you're able to pick some of your experiences in vet school for your clinical rotations. And I ended up deciding I wanted to place myself on purpose in a predominantly Spanish-speaking community because I think we just don't get that experience enough in school. And I think I just needed to challenge myself. A little fun fact, Haiti is connected to the Dominican Republic. So kind of a large population of Haitians are fluent in Spanish. Shame on me, but I'm working on it. (laughs) Like several other languages, Steffi. I think that you can give yourself a little grace. Yeah, Yeah, unfortunately, I came in the U.S. too early to be to learn Spanish fluently, but I'm working on it. (laughs) But yeah, so in that regard, being on the other side of it, I just remember. So there are a lot of families. There were a lot of families there. It's a it was a low cost stay and neuter clinic. First of all, again, with the access to veterinary care and the lack of it in a lot of um, predominantly communities of color, multilingual communities. In that aspect, these people were were grateful that the service was there. So they came. So that's great. Just coming through the door. That's amazing. So we have them coming, the whole family coming. There were situations where the, the kids were acting as translators for the family and as incredible and that the care was able to be translated. But there are situations where they came without translator. They came without their kids. Their kids are at school. They just had to come alone, but they knew their pets needed help. And we were there, there to help them. But not all of us spoke Spanish. But I just remember when I was alone with the family, I used a little bit of Spanish that I knew, but they just, they were just so grateful to just have somebody listen to them. I knew, like we were saying earlier, they came into that room being afraid because they wanted to have the best care for their animal, but they just didn't know that anyone would be able to hear them, to listen, to um, understand what they had to say. So, and then the best part was just, we have multiple Spanish speaking staff members. And I think that's extremely critical having bilingual staff members, but when they come in the room and you're able to see the conversation, it's like fireworks. It's amazing when, you know, and we already have a compliance issue in veterinary medicine, but being able to have that conversation, being able to have the connection with people, 
that's just help helping our patients and they're involved in the conversation and you can see them being part of the process. So I, I think there's so much room there and we have so much that we can do for our clients and our population in general and just make it so much more accessible. Just focusing on being able to give them that, that connection, that access to languages. Yeah. Gonna, I'm going to take a couple of these questions that I'm seeing on the chat, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time wrapping up. But I did want to make one of uh, Dr. Greenhill-isms, the soapbox issues. And so this notion that because you have a pet, you automatically go to the vet, like my colleagues, my wonderful veterinary peeps, stop that. Like, it's not a thing. <laughs> like, it's, it's not a thing. Having a pet is not necessarily predictive of taking said pet to the veterinarian. How many meetings have we all sat in? We're trying to figure out how to get people with cats to bring the cats to. (laughs) So when we talk about this in terms of like communities of color or Latin, Latinx communities, French Creole communities, whatever, or, you know, like there's this notion that either we don't have pets or we don't know any better, but there are a lot of things that are happening that can either serve as barriers or, you know, other kind of breakpoints that don't mean that having a pet is predictive of going to the vet. So there's one of my little soapboxes. Stop that. <laughs> make that assumption. And don't make it the assumption that people don't know. There's lots of reasons. And part of it is this language ego and the shame that kind of comes along with that. Some of it is you can't get the cat in the barrier. I mean, in the carrier. You, 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 so, you know, like, so, so there's barriers, folks. And, and language can be one of those things, but it's certainly not limited to that. So a couple of questions here, Danielle, are there opportunities kind of like, how did you come up with this idea? Um, um, and are there opportunities for funding and development of inclusive, multilingual, and I guess practical language teaching programs at other vet schools? How can they do what you did at CSU? I would be willing to talk to anybody about how we developed it. You know, it was sitting down and talking through what we do and, and how to make it accessible. We are actually trying to make our rural series available to outside learners from outside from CSU students. And we're also in the process of building you know, that's for rural and livestock medicine, but we're also building a companion animal online series and just starting that process now that's also supposed to be open and available to outside learners. It, it was a long process, but it was a short process. And, you know, what? one of our biggest challenges in finding a way to do it was finding the place to put it in the curriculum, right? The vet school has 20 to 25 credits a semester. Hey, let's just talk a couple credits of language in there while you're learning heavy science. Let's learn some language. It's beautiful for great. I bet there's some studies that could be really good about like, hey, we're using this other piece right now. But um, that was one of our big fun challenges is like, where can we tuck this in in between microbiology and bacteriology? And, um, <laughs> and so, so it was really cool. But of course, I'd be willing to have a conversation with anybody who's trying to implement this in their school. And, and what does it look like piece by piece? But it was really helpful to have the languages department on there. When I was in school, we had a we had a practicum that did it, and I brought all my Spanish to it, which was good and, and helpful, but it was a week out of four years, right? Language is the skill we have to develop over time. You probably wanted a shorter answer. My apologies, Lisa. You develop language over so much time, and so you have to just keep tra- practicing and doing it, and so starting early and coming through, and then how can we get it in our schools? I'd love to brainstorm with people and, and make it happen, and we're trying to make it available to everybody. We'll have, to right we'll have to connect. Yes. <laughs> <With Lana. laughs> 
Yeah. I want to connect with all of you. You guys are such amazing <laughs> humans and my future colleagues. I'm so freaking excited over here. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. So stay tuned. So some of those programs will be available more widely outside of CSU. We also know that a great way of making sure that your clients for folks that are out in the field have access is to hire multilingual professionals. There's a couple here. <laughs> Any four years. <laughs> here, who I'm two, sure two weeks. Will, right? <laughs> there are a couple here that, you know, certainly either are in the market or soon will be in said market. <laughs> but what are some other tools that folks are using to kind of communicate across, you know, these language barriers? I think the social media plays an extremely big role. I think given what's going on right now with COVID, obviously we we see the importance of social media and how we stay communicated now. And I think that's going to change the whole environment of how we interact, not only as a profession because of telemedicine, but as a society as a whole. But I also wanted to point out something I know you said regarding new graduates going into uh, into practice. I think that a, a big, also a big realization that new graduates have to think about is when they're trying to uh, find the practice that they're going to be working at and and negotiate a contract to not undersell yourself and use your ability to be bilingual as a as a like an asset for that practice that you're going into like I, I don't think a lot of people realize this <laughs> this is me from just talking to different uh almost new graduates and and they, they're like just like light bulb lit, lit up when I said this but saying that okay I you know I deserve a higher pay because of this and I can reach out to a, a greater community like I can bring out and, and educate and and have a break a greater impact in your practice and I feel like it's important for new graduates to utilize their ability to speak a second language as a thing that they should not undersell themselves and and, and value themselves as an individual and as a professional right that's what I did as a veterinary assistant, I know because I moved so much, um, and after being used as a translator so much, um, when I every time I moved, I would use, "Hey, I speak Spanish. I've been used as a translator so much," and I would always get the higher end of the paycheck as an assistant, just because I really know knew how to sell myself. And I feel like that a lot of people that are multilingual need to start utilizing that and seeing the value in their abilities, and do not be afraid to speak your language. Be proud of that. You know? Awesome, great, and great. <laughs> So as we wrap up other things like Google Translate, it is not a perfect right. translation, but it is super helpful. <laughs> yes. My co my co-instructor would really want me to talk about Lingi and oh toot, I forgot the second one, but there's a couple that are a little bit better than Google Translate that'll <laughs> give you and let you put it contextually and you can still have it as an app. Google Translate can get you into some pretty bad trouble. So I just wanted to throw those out there because she would slap my wrist if I didn't tell you guys. So ixnay on the Google Translate. Sorry, I don't like being negative. Wordreference.com, also a real great one. What not, is, I don't, they don't pay me, but I just do want to help people use the best <laughs> ones to not get into trouble. What is it again? Word reference and Lingi, L-I-N-G-U-E-E. Those are both to help with the context, which sometimes when we're dealing with animals, we do want to use the right context. Awesome. Great. Any other tools that folks are finding useful? Isma, we did have a question in the chat again about ASL as another language that is spoken, maybe not audibly, but certainly visually. Are there any tools that you know of that kind of help bridge that gap besides things like, you know, TDDY and all of those kinds of things? 
I can't think of any apps on top of my head, but I do know that there are resources out there for that. And again, you know, it's going to, like Danielle brought up, in the context of animals, it becomes even more important to use the right ones. But there are definitely tools out there and there are ways to kind of, you know, have at least a basic understanding of ASL, basic words and basic signs. Awesome. Wonderful. Danielle, there's all kinds of folks that are eager to find out how to reach you. Oh, <laughs> you. you are very, very popular in the chat. Um, do I so need to say my best? email right now or will you share that somehow? Uh, yeah, you can give out, you can shout out your email. Oh, great. Um, so it's Danielle, <laughs> D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E dot Fry, F-R-E-Y at State C-O-L-O-S-T-A-T-E dot E-D-U. Can't wait to hear from you. (laughs) (laughs) Just a a couple of other comments from the chat. Yes, Pearl here is talking about that microaggression of, oh my goodness, you speak speak English so well. Yes, stop doing that. Don't do that. It's, it's, It's not really a compliment for folks that are bridging those gaps. And the last question here is, have any of you participated in the Purdue Certificate Program? Yeah, so it's been a really long time, but I think that program is incredible in terms of the amount of work and material that's available. And it allows you to, I think the way that Cornell did it for us is we actually had an informal course in that you sign up for the course and then one professor comes and kind of guides a conversation. So you're able to kind of digest the information that you're getting from the Purdue course. But I think regardless, whether you have that format or not, I think this is a course, if anybody's out there wondering if they should sign up for um, the Purdue Certificate course. Absolutely, yes. That program is invaluable. It touches on so many different topics, whether it's language barriers, whether it's microaggressions, whether it's gender biases. Um, I think it's, in, it's invaluable. So if the person who was asking about the course was wondering if something they should pursue, I think the answer is yes. Did they have a specific question about it? How do you feel about the program? Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> Got that question there for you. And just if you are at an AAVMC member institution and you are faculty or staff, talk to your dean. AAVMC is still doing a matching program with the certificate program. So if your institution pays for the first faculty and or staff person, you you get a pair and share there. So you get, you know, it's kind of a buy one, get one free situation. So go talk to your dean because that those resources are available for you so that you can get kind of two um, two for one. So, and then there's the, the sorry, the student on the student side, the SAVMA. So SAVMA has a student a committee called ICDC that kind of pays for you to take this course as well. So just take a look out for keep an eye out for SAVMA news, and then also the National Voice uh, has another scholarship. So you have two options on the student side to have this course fully funded for yourself and have a year to take it. Great, awesome. And for folks out in the field, there is a practitioner as well as staff version of the certificate program that's um, all available and it's all online. You don't have to go anywhere. It's asynchronous. You can use the podcast as fulfill some of those requirements in terms of some of the non kind of direct course related module related programs. So definitely check it out. And so with that, I will bring this episode of the podcast to a close. Thank you, Juan, Usma, Steffi. 
Kathy, Danielle, thank you so much. This has been a rich conversation. You all are, yes, delightful humans. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. so good to meet all of you. Me too. Yeah, this is, uh, yes, they say this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. You can find the podcast on most podcast apps, you know, Apple, Stitcher, all of that good stuff. You can find us on Facebook as well at AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast page, where I post information about the show, as well as other issues related to diversity and inclusion and veterinary medicine, as well as higher ed. So with that, thank you again, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.